Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. Uh, We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, feel free to send those. Go to www.decipher.com. DiscipleDojo.org. You can submit questions through the contact page there. So this is a great question uh, in light of the video that came out recently uh, this week uh, with all of these doctors talking about the supposed cure for the coronavirus, for COVID-19. And I, I don't even want to get into that. Everybody has their opinion on COVID and coronavirus and I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a doctor. Even if I was a doctor, there's a million things you can specialize in, so just being a doctor doesn't make somebody necessarily an expert, although it does give a pretty good, you know, you should listen to them, what they're saying, but it doesn't automatically mean they're right. And so just, I think we should remember that always. Uh, Christians, so let's chat for a minute about Christian reactions. And I'm speaking to Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're watching this, cool. You're getting some inside family discussion. But we Christians are typically not good, at least cultural engaged Christians, not good at holding a balance. What I mean by that is we we kind of pick something that our political views align with, and then we filter everything through that lens. And and that's just that's the way the world works. But we as Christians, instead of standing above and over or, or outside of and beyond kingdoms of this world, we, like everybody else, get sucked right into it. And so our beliefs are just as susceptible to political and media manipulation as anybody else. And so what that does is it leads Christians, especially, to take one of two approaches. They either run headlong into uh, the, 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 the scientific approach the listen to the experts, uh, don't question what people in power are saying because they're in power for a reason, because they're smart, they're educated, they know what they're talking about. And if you question it, then you're dumb, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're whatever. And so that's one route that they go. Or they go the other route and they say, no one can be trusted because everybody's fallen, everybody's messed up. And so experts especially can't be trusted, especially if they're not Christian experts. And so anytime you see an official story, doubt it, be a skeptic, because they are covering something up. It's always a they that's doing something. And so Christians kind of run that way. And and both sides then, what they do is clamor for people that are saying what they want to hear so that they can throw it out into the public consciousness and say, see, aha, look, see, you're a dummy if you don't believe these people. You're a sheep if you don't believe these people. You're this and that, whatever, and then everybody gets riled up. So we need to not do that. We need to, especially as Christians, we need to balance our approach. Now, balance doesn't mean mediocrity. Balance doesn't mean always Uh, refusing to go one way or the other when a decision needs to be made. Balance doesn't mean sitting on the fence. Balance means listening to as much as we can from as many different sources as we can, taking it in, and then exercising discernment in what we do with it while maintaining charity towards other people 
who come to a different conclusion. And that's something that I would love, and Disciple Dojo wants to always encourage people, whether it's theological issues, political issues, ethical, cultural, medical, social, any of these issues. What we want to do, what I want to do through Disciple Dojo is encourage people to not fall one way or the other prematurely, to have a balanced approach in everything, in, in everything. Be balanced. Because what that lets you do, if you're balanced, you can pivot. If you have good balance, you can move, you can swivel, you can change direction if needed. I'm a martial artist, Disciple Dojo is, you know, part of what we do is martial arts. And balance is a key in, in sparring or rolling. If you don't have good balance, you may know the right move to do and you may see the opening to do it, but your body's not in the right position. You can't pivot, you can't make that transition and you get caught, you get tapped, you get hit, you get whatever type of martial art you're practicing. Well, it's the same thing intellectually. And it's the same thing ethically, is if we have good balance, then we're able to take in all the voices that are clamoring in our culture, and they are clamoring. If you're on Facebook right now, I mean, my voice is just adding to the clamor, but everybody's clamoring. You're getting feed. Your feed is full of people. I believe this. I believe this. I believe this. There's no lack of voices uh, inundating our minds. But if we have balance then what that lets us do is that lets us engage, that lets us take in, that lets us weigh the voices that we're hearing, and it also lets us be able to pivot, to move, to respond whenever we do hear something that is worth responding to or pivoting to. And if, it, man, if we could do that, especially as Christians, I mean, as, as people in general, but I'm again, I'm talking to Christians here. If we could do that, we would have so much more cultural equity we would have so much more people would actually care what we think if they believe that we know how to think and that we are able to think and rationally if we're not reactionary. And so that's the before even getting into the question of deliverance, because we're going to come to that question. That's what you you asked after all. But I wanted to set it up because this is part of a wider cultural trend is we are a people who are reactionary. And reactionary people are always reacting to what's being thrown at them. And we want to be able to have the balance needed so that we can calmly, with discernment, listen to what's being said, sift through, throw it out there for discussion. If you follow me on Facebook, you know that's 90% of what I use this social media for is the ministry of Disciple Dojo. That's what the engage and equip, engage, empower Disciple Dojo's ministry, engage that's what I'm doing when I'm posting these discussions, articles, comments, um, engaging with people, not to just preach, this is what I believe, this is what you need to believe, but actually say, hey, this is what I believe right now. If I'm wrong, I want to know. So tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me what you think. So it's not just an echo chamber. If it were an echo chamber, I would just block everybody that disagrees with me and I'd have a cheerleading section. But rather, it's a, it's a training chamber. <laughs> it's a it's a training room. It's a it's a mat. It's a dojo. And in the dojo, you come at somebody. They are trying to choke you or break your arm or twist your foot leg. You're trying to do the same thing to them. But the goal, as I've said in previous Disciple Dojo videos, the goal is not to hurt each other. The goal is to make each other better. And so when I interact on Facebook, and hopefully you as well, if you don't do this, let me challenge you to start doing it, is interact with the ability to make yourself and the people listening or interacting 
better. That should be your goal in using social media if you're going to use it to engage in issues, cultural, theological, ethical, political, any of that. Make yourself, make each other better. There's enough people out there, there's enough pundits out there just spewing, just regurgitating what they believe. So we want to rise above that. That being said, let's answer the question that you asked because it was a good one. What do I think, what do you think about these deliverance type churches? Okay, so one of the women, one of the doctors in the video that was shared this week, uh, the, 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 I forgot the name of it, I don't have it in front of me, but Frontline Workers, something like that. It was, it was a group, made, a website made specifically to put this video out there. Uh, I don't even know if there's a group that's actually behind it or not. Um, I don't know. And honestly, I don't care enough to look into it because uh, just seeing a couple of the videos by one of the women, uh, the, the woman, I believe she's from Nigeria. I think she was Nigerian. But the doctor, if you look at some of her videos, she's made claims involving things from alien DNA being used by the government to uh, you developing certain forms of sickness because of sexual encounters in your dreams with demons. Uh, her YouTube page, this isn't secondhand information, go to her YouTube channel and you can look at, I mean, she's got tons of videos and they talk about all kinds of deliverance stuff and spiritual warfare and breaking off these generational curses and, and, and spirit mates, marriages. And I, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's out there. So what do we do as Christians when we come across other Christians and but they're doing or saying or teaching something that we aren't quite sure what to do with. I mean, it doesn't, it's easy if they outright negate the Bible. Like if somebody teaches uh, Jesus is not the son of God or Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Uh, he got married. He, he went to France. They gave birth to a line of Merovingian kings or, you know, any of that damn brown nonsense. That's not that hard to engage with. And, and we don't have to entertain it. I mean, we can, engage, but we're not worried about it because it's, it's bogus. It's patently false. Uh, but when it comes to things that are a little more on the fence, what do we do with that? And that's where things like miracles and healing and deliverance and demons and all of that stuff come into play for biblical Christians. Because again, if you're just popping on here, Facebook Live, this is a discussion where a Christian asked a question of a Christian. <laughs> so you're getting a perspective of an evangelical Christian perspective. If you don't believe in God to begin with, then this conversation is just basically, uh, I, I don't know what you're getting from it. Glad you're here, but I don't really know. Uh, I, I don't care what you think. If, you, if we aren't on the same page of whether God exists or not, that's another discussion we should be having another time. This is for people who are, okay, I believe in God, and I even believe in the Bible. And I believe that there were miracles in the Bible. I believe Jesus drove out demons. Jesus' followers had encounters with demons. I believe that it's real, but I see a lot of stuff happening, and I don't know what to make of it because some of it just seems out there. Balance. Remember the term, balance. Whenever we encounter anything, spiritually speaking, that we aren't sure of, avoid the two errors. The first error is to just condemn it all. Oh, that's weird. Can't be from the Lord. That's one error. The other error is to say, oh, this is fantastic. This is amazing. I need to learn about this and they deep dive into it and become obsessed with it. We want to avoid both of those because they're both unbalanced approaches. 
fortunately, Scripture tells us a way to approach it. It gives us a good balance. So here's an example. Uh, when Paul is writing to, we're going to we're going to take a little detour into Scripture for a second. Well, it's not a detour; it's the main tour. But we're going to we're going to take a deep dive into a particular Scripture because I think that the themes that underline it have a lot to say about this question: What do we do when we encounter these spiritual deliverance, seemingly kind of crazy stuff? This is what Paul, now Paul was writing, we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians. This was to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a major metropolitan city. It was prosperous. It was cosmopolitan. People were coming and going from all over the empire. And because of that, it was a melting pot of beliefs and views and religions and faiths. And um, it was also incredibly debauched. You know, I joke in some messages I've given that Corinth is like Bangkok, Las Vegas and the red light district in Amsterdam all rolled into one. Uh, Corinth was so debauched that there was uh, the, the term to Corinthianize meant to be to become utterly depraved. That was a term that was coined by people not from Corinth about Corinth. Okay, so this is the city that Paul's writing to. This just put Bangkok, red light district, Las Vegas, and throw in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Why not? Put it all in a blender, sprinkle in some Koine Greek. Boom, out comes Corinth. Okay, so that's who Paul's writing to. And and the churches in Corinth, the church in Corinth, when they would gather, in Corinth, people did not have any questions about whether the spirit realm existed. No, everybody in the ancient world recognized the existence of the spirit world. They recognized that there was there was good, there was evil, there were things that were beyond what we can see and touch and taste and smell. And there the, there was more to this world than materialism. The question in the Greek and Greco-Roman world in general was, now how do we tap into that? How do we, so the gods, they know what's going on. How do we get them to let us in on what's going on? How do we get in on the action? And that's what religion came from. That's what magic, that's what incantations, that's what uh, all of these superstitions, all of these practices, that's what they were all geared at doing. How do we do things to get the gods to tell us what we want to know or do for us what we want to have done? So one of the ways in, in, in Corinth and the surrounding culture, if you wanted to know something from the gods, you'd go to an oracle. And an oracle was someone who was believed to be in communication with the spirits. You see the movie 300? You remember 300 at the beginning before the battle? What does King Leonidas do? You know, he climbs up the thing, and at the top there are these creepy old dudes, and then there's this kind of semi-naked girl who's kind of floating around out of her mind. That's an oracle. And oracles, that's not too far, I mean, a little artistic license, but oracles were basically under the influence of something. Some of them were situated in caves over vents where gases from the earth, they were basically huffing all day and entered into trances and had ecstatic experiences. Others would drink certain things or eat certain things and, and to put them into a trance. And then it was believed that they would be in communion with the spirits of the underworld. And they would receive this message. It would take them over. I mean, like 300 is a great example. The Oracle in that movie, she's just flailing around, just, you know, speaking words and has no idea. It's not her giving the message. It's the gods speaking to King Leonidas or, or the the old dudes up on the oracle, her keepers, giving the information on whether he should go to battle or not. That's what oracles were used for. So you want to know something? You ask an oracle. And an oracle is not going to tell you their opinion. They're just going to be, they have no control. 
They just speak. The words come. They are like a mouthpiece for the gods. Paul is writing to a church that that's what they know. That's how, when it comes to getting spiritual messages, that's their world. And then all of a sudden, when the church in Corinth comes together, when, when, when the gospel starts spreading and Christians start learning about the God of Israel, not the oracles, and the God of Israel has things called prophets, and prophets are those who the God of Israel communicates with in a special way, who are then to take that message and to communicate it to God's people for different purposes. And this is very close to what the idea of an oracle was, but they're not the same. And there's, there's, there's an incredible difference, a profound difference between prophecy and oracle, which we won't get into uh, too much right now. But one of the main differences is that biblical prophecy is never an, an experience where the prophet is, their mind is taken over and they just become a mouthpiece. I mean, even the Old Testament prophets, the thus saith the Lord type prophets, the ones who God was heavy upon them in a way unique from anybody else in the world at the time, even they retained their understanding of what was happening and their ability to communicate it. You see this in Jeremiah, you see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Isaiah, the big boys, Elijah, these thus saith the Lord types. So even in the Old Testament, prophets were never just mouthpieces. They still retained their, it was a relationship. The oracle had no relationship with the underworld. It was like a faucet and word was coming out. Prophecy or oracle was coming out. The prophets in the Bible, it's a relationship. And they have a relationship with God who speaks to them or who, 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 who invests in them insight. That's what the word prophet means. It just means seer. And then they are able to speak that. To prophesy so that people can hear it and respond to it. Now, that's biblical prophecy, but you've got Corinth, and they're used to oracles and craziness and, and out of your mind stuff. So this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to jump to verse 26. This is what Paul says. Let's do it. If I had the ability, I'd put the words up here on the screen, but I don't. It says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Okay, you, you, When you come together, you guys all have these spiritual gifts. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, in another language, in an, in an ecstatic experience, two, or at most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So right off the bat, we see where a lot of churches get unbiblical real fast. There are a number of churches where you go in and they're so excited about this gift of tongues. And, and tongues is the ability to speak in another language, whether it's another human language or whether it's some kind of ecstatic utterance or whether it's, um, you know, Whatever it is, there's debate on that, and there are different forms of it. But the, the word tongues just means languages. And so in churches where this gift is present, and I know people that have this gift and use it, they, there's a tendency to want to show off. You know, you're so in the moment, you're so during worship, and then all of a sudden just, a, you know, some language comes out. And this happens a lot. I mean, heck, turn on TV preachers and you'll see this all the time. 
you know, Paula White, um, Kenneth Copeland, all these charismatic TV preachers, they'll just be in the middle of the sermon, you know, they'll just start babbling. No biblical justification for that whatsoever. Not one shred of biblical justification to start babbling in another tongue while I'm talking to people who all speak my language just for what? Well, I'm communing with God. Scripture says it right here. Just do it between you and God at home. Just do it between you and God quietly sitting there. It's not something to show off. The purpose of tongues and a, pro- a prophet, prophetic message given in tongues is for other people to be able to hear, to take in, to discern, and then to act on. So you just babbling around because you're so spiritual, that's not spiritual. That's not even biblical. It's, it, it's useless to the church. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on the toes of some of your favorite TV preachers, but somebody needs to sit some of them down and go over this with them because it brings ill repute upon all of us. Those of us who actually believe that tongues are a thing, that miracles are a thing. I'm operating, by the way, from the assumption that miracles still happen. I'm not a secessionist. I don't believe they stopped with the Holy Spirit, uh, with with the, the writing of the Bible. I don't believe the Holy Spirit stopped gifting people. But I do believe that a lot of the stuff that goes on in the name of spiritual gifts is absolute nonsense. It doesn't mean that the real thing doesn't exist. What it means is that Satan's always been good at counterfeiting. There's got to be the real before there can be the counterfeit. And so I believe in tongues. I believe in healing. If you're skeptic, if you're not Christian, you're watching this, you're like, what? All right, I'm checking out. You've said you... All right, fine. I just I have enough humility to know that this universe is bigger than what the material in front of me is than what the the actual physicality of things are. There's more to it than that. And I believe for a number of reasons that Jesus is the embodiment of that. And again, that's a discussion for another time. But for those who are already convinced of these truths, there's no need to convince you of that. What we're talking about is what about the crazy stuff being done in the name of Jesus? And that's what Paul was addressing because he was getting word from from the Corinthian churches that there was all kinds of foolishness going on. And so that's what he's addressing in this chapter. He goes on to say, so if there's no interpreter, no message in tongues should be given. Simple. Because the whole purpose of a message in tongues is communication and then somebody else to receive that and to be able to engage with it, to act on it, to understand it. So then he goes on to say, he's already said if somebody has a message, if somebody has something to say in tongues or a hymn or a song, uh, two at the most three should do it. There's no need to line them all up and just have a parade of miraculous. Paul's not about that. He says, two or three prophets should speak. This is verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what is said. Did you catch that? Two or three should speak, and everybody else weigh carefully what's said. Does not say Two or three prophets speak, you listen and obey. Then say that. Weigh carefully. Balance. Listen to what they're saying. Process what they're saying. They may be saying something that God has prompted, but they may be speaking it wrong. They may be adding something to it that God didn't say. They may be forgetting something that God did say. There's a human-divine interaction, and the human side of things can mess things up a lot. We are very good at baptizing our own bad ideas and calling them divine. 
And so Paul is warning against this. He says, two or three should speak, the other should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the saints. This is the key thing that Paul is saying here that, that pertains back to the question about faith, healing, deliverance, demons, and all of that. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, everywhere you go, God is going to be a God of peace, not of disorder or chaos. Now, there's a difference between God doing things that disrupts certain systems, you know, Jesus turning over tables, uh, God speaking and, and disrupting the life of someone like Saul of Tarsus. Uh, there, God will disrupt things, but in general, overall, his character is not like the oracle. See, the spirit of the oracle was not subject to the control of the oracle. The spirit of the oracle had no say over what they were speaking. The oracle was just went into a trance and a message came. You see this in cultures around the world today that have shamanism, what we would call witch doctors, or, or certain uh, tribal elders or others that do these different things that get into a trance, a state of ecstasy. And then it's like they, you know, or sometimes artists when they're creating or right, they, I just, I, I didn't, I lost all control. And all of a sudden something else just took over and boom, I wrote this song or I made this statue or I painted this picture or whatever. You know, people talk about that, about being out of their body and somebody else taking over. That's what Corinthian culture thought hearing from the gods consisted of. So of course, if you go to this church, this new group, and they hear from the gods and they have prophets, oh, that's just like the oracle that I went to last week. Let me hear what they have to say. What Paul is telling the Corinthian Christians is you are to be different because God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God who takes over somebody and, and, and removes their cognizant abilities. God never says to check your brains at the door of the church. Now, yes, faith can go beyond our understanding sometimes. God's ways are not our ways. He does you know, mysterious things. He does miraculous things, crazy things we can't even imagine happen. This doesn't negate any of that. This is talking about your normal gathering worship context. And Paul gives the key that we evaluate everything by. God is not a God of chaos, disorder, craziness. He's a God of peace. He's a God of shalom. He's a God of healing. He's a God of wholeness, integrity. That's what this word shalom means. That's the kind of God that the Bible reveals. So when you go to a church and they start doing something weird, some of this is going to be cultural. If you grew up Catholic, if you grew up Presbyterian, if you grew up Episcopalian, if somebody starts raising their hands, shouting hallelujah, telling the preacher, come on now, come on now, doing all of these things that are interactive, it might freak you out. It might be weird. If they start speaking in, in a language that you don't understand, that's weird. If there's no interpretation, if there's nothing given to you or to the church as a whole from that, if it's just these sounds and language, then 
it's useless. It's useless. I won't, I won't say that it's outright sinful because it may just be out of ignorance and excitement. It's not tempered with knowledge, but it's certainly not useful to anyone. So that's the first thing when addressing these things. Now, um, Paul's not done. He, he, he talks to that same concept that he said to the Corinthians. He says this in his letter to the Thessalonians. And this is a shorter version of what we just looked at. In, in, when he's closing his letter to the Thessalonians, so he's talked about, and he's talked about stuff that's we're talking about still today, the coming of the Lord, the end of the world, the revealing of the Antichrist. I mean, geez, everything in their brother has qualified as the Antichrist at some point. People are, uh, people are convinced. I have people in my timeline that are convinced that vaccines are the Antichrist. Bill Gates is the Antichrist. Wearing masks are the mark of the beast. Now, it used to be Russia. It used to be um, Hitler. It used to be Saddam Hussein. It used to be credit card chips. It used to be... It, it's a moving target. People just pick something they don't like or that they're scared of, and they try to take the Bible and make it fit so that the Bible now is the thing that's that, that telling them to oppose that. Scripture doesn't work that way. 100% of those predictions have been wrong. 100 out of 100 antichrist predictions have been wrong so that should caution us balance that should help us keep that balance before trying to put antichrist label on something especially if you just get it off of youtube uh youtube it's not doesn't count as research just let's clear that up paul is finishing his message to the thessalonians and what he says after he's talked about all of this stuff the coming of Jesus and, and the end of the world and, the, and the, 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 what, what some Christians think is talking about the rapture. It's actually talking about the resurrection and Jesus' return. There's nothing about the rapture in the Bible. Maybe we can talk about that in another episode. Uh, it's an unbiblical belief. Nobody believed it before the 1830s, so nobody should believe it today. Again, another episode. Paul finishes his instructions to the Thessalonians. He says, verse 15, chapter 5, Thessalonians 5, 15. He says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. I'm just going to pause there for a second. Paul's writing to the church. He says, always try to be kind to each other. We're not good at that. Christians are bad. I, I will have comments pop up right now that will probably label me as a heretic or as a liberal or as a conservative or whatever boogeyman somebody wants to, I mean, that's a daily occurrence for me on social media. Paul says to Christians, Hey, be kind to each other. And he doesn't leave it there. Here's the kicker. Be kind to each other and to everyone else. That's outside the church. That's outside your family. That's outside your friends group. That's outside your echo chamber. Be kind. Facebook, Instagram, be kind to each other. Stop being jerks. This is Paul writing to the church of social media. Stop being a jerk. Stop assuming the worst in every comment you read. Give somebody the benefit of the doubt. You have no nonverbal cues to go off of. Don't just assume that they're angry when they're typing. Or that they're, they buy into one whole worldview just because they have one view on a certain issue. 
Treat them the way you would want people to treat you. Be kind to each other. That's not the main point, but that's an aside that needs to be taken in this day and age. He goes on to say, verse 16, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Some versions say do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. So right here, Paul's saying, don't dismiss prophecies. If somebody comes and they say they have a word from God, don't immediately just, you're a nut, you're a moron, you're crazy, you need a psych ward, you need antidepressants, you need some medicines. Don't immediately write it off. Why? Because there's a whole lot of prophecies that have happened in the history of the world, and God's dealing with his people, and he's the same God. So prophecy is still a thing, still going on. I'm sorry, secessionists. I love you, but you're wrong. Prophecies still happen. Don't treat them with contempt. But that was to my secessionist friends, now to my charismatic friends. Your turn. Balance. Don't embrace every prophecy willy-nilly. Just because somebody claims to have a word from the Lord doesn't mean they do. He goes on right after he says, don't treat prophecy with contempt. He says, verse 21, test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Test everything. If you hear a claim, even if somebody says it's from the Lord, test it. Don't believe them, but don't reject them either. Hold off. Discern. Test what they're saying. Wait and see. When, when Mary, Jesus' mom, when she was told by an angel, you're going to give birth to the king of Israel, the Messiah, and it's going to be through the Holy Spirit, that's a pretty wild thing. I mean, skeptics and atheists make fun of that stuff today all the time. Like, oh, yeah, virgin birth, yeah, whatever. Some Roman soldier knocked her up, and then Joseph had to come up with a story, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we've, we've heard all those things about it. <clears throat> but in Scripture, what Mary did, God said, the angel said, you're going to have a child. She said, how can that happen? I've never had sex. And he said, it's going to be through the Holy Spirit. And what we read is that it says Mary treasured these things in her heart. She pondered it in her heart. She didn't run out and start telling people. She didn't really know what to do with it. She probably scared out of her mind at the time. She took it. She locked it up in her heart, and she treasured it, pondered it mold over it. I used to say in college when I worked at a charismatic ministry at the University of Georgia, and we'd have some people come from, actually from up here, just over in Fort Mill, uh, from Morningstar. They'd come and they'd do teaching at our campus ministry, and, and some, of, some of what they taught was pretty good. Some of what they taught was bananas and just flat out wrong, but some of it was pretty good. And whenever I would interact with people in that circle, uh, they would give a word or something. Oh, the Lord's telling me, or is the Lord doing it? My response was always, okay, cool. If that's what God's going to do, then he'll confirm it. He'll make it clear. And sometimes it turned out to be pretty on the spot. Uh, sometimes it was completely off, not even close to true. That's how it is in this world. That's how it is for people that are 
followers of God that are that are trying to walk in the Spirit, that are trying to hear from the Lord, that are trying to live out a life of discipleship. It's not neat. God didn't give us a heavenly playbook. He didn't give us a set of rules. He gave us a story that spans millennia, and he invited us into it. Is God still doing stuff today? Is he still healing? I absolutely believe he's still healing. Is he still casting out? Are demons still around? I absolutely believe there's such a thing as demons. Because of what I've experienced? Maybe, but more because of who Jesus is. If Jesus says there's demons, there's demons. If Jesus says anything, it's true. That's the viewpoint of a Christian. So I take my cues from Jesus. He certainly believed demons were a real thing. But if you notice, he never told his followers, all right, start going around naming demons. Start going around uh, uh, speaking generational curses and breaking off in the name of this spirit. And that's, you don't see that in scripture. What you see among Jesus' followers is they go and they proclaim the gospel. They go and they live lives of discipleship. They tell people about Jesus. They announce his presence in the world, that the king of Israel has arrived, and that means that the entire created order is now being renewed and called to what it will one day be fully. They announce that, and if they encountered the demonic, if they encountered evil spirits, if they encountered supernatural opposition, they dealt with it. They dealt with it in Jesus' name, by Jesus' authority. And so that, to me, gives the answer this long-winded, roundabout way. We'll cut this down for the podcast, I'm sure. But that, to me, is the answer to the question. What do, what do we believe about these deliverance ministries? I, I look to Scripture. I say, well, what does Scripture show happening? And what are we seeing today in comparison to what's happening? There's a couple of—I'm going I'm, I'm to—you can see behind me, I read a lot— I'm going to point out a couple of books that I want to give you guys if you want to go deeper on this that have some really good insight. Best book ever written on how the demonic works in this world. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. The most profound book on the supernatural that I've ever read outside of the Bible. In this book, there's a junior demon, Wormwood, and he's been, he's been tasked with tormenting a soul by the higher powers of hell, which are the lower powers of hell, actually. Hell is like this giant bureaucracy that goes all the way down, and it's headed up by Satan, who they call our father down below. And so uh, Wormwood's uncle, Screwtape, is a, is a more advanced, a higher, lower-ranking, what we would say higher-ranking demon. And so he gives the, the Screwtape letters or letters that Screwtape writes to Wormwood, to tell him how to more convincingly or how to more securely uh, torment and lead astray the Christian that he's assigned to. So Wormwood's like a, 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 a negative, a guardian angel in reverse. He's, a gar- he's like a guardian demon. He's not guarding. He's a, he's, a, he's a tormenting demon. So the whole book is this back and is, is Screwtape writing to Wormwood saying, okay, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Here's and it's done in satire. So that everything that he's saying is about how the demonic operates as opposed to how God, who is called our enemy above, how he operates. 
And there, I'm just going to read this one line because it encapsulates what a lot of Christians fall for. He says, um, he said, he's talking about um, his, he's talking about Wormwood's patient, he calls him, and filling his mind with anxiety and, and fears. And he says, we want him to be in the maximum uncertainty so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses either hope or fear. Here's the line. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy, against God. God, he wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business, Satan, the devil's, our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Now, Lewis wrote this in the aftermath of World War II. And was this written during World War II? Mere Christianity was written during World War II. Um, around the time when there was massive uncertainties in the world. And 42. Yeah, he wrote this in 42. So this was during the, the Second World War. So he's writing when there's not a global pandemic, there's world war. And what he has screw tape tell Wormwood, I love this line. God wants men to be concerned with what they do, how they live, how they act. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. This is, people are falling for this still with COVID, with coronavirus, with whatever you want to call it. The media, both political sides of the aisle, everything is about getting people to live in a state of fear, uncertainty, anxiety. Because if you're uncertain, if you're fearful, you got to tune in. You got to click the website. You got to watch the news because they're going to tell you what you need to know in order for it not to happen to you. And fear and uncertainty are the currency of our social media economy. That's what gets people, that's what gets people's attention. And so what Screwtape is telling Wormwood in that uh, line from Screwtape Letters is, is absolutely spot on. Get people scared about what's going to happen to them. And that's where we want them as the demonic, as the oppressor. Because if they put that aside and start focusing on, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to live? What am I going to be in this world that's going to be for good rather than that's the worst thing in the world for all wormwood and screw tape. And so as Christians, when we're encountering, we, we want to keep that in mind. Even when Christians go for deliverance ministries, there's, there's a lot of this innate superstition. There's a lot of I'm, I'm oppressed. I'm tormented. I'm dealing with this and this and this. And there are real things that afflict people. And there are things that people need deliverance from. I totally believe in it. But the majority of people that are attracted to that stuff or that are, um, that are teaching that stuff, there's a lot more of the play on fear and uncertainty and protecting you rather than calling you to walk in the authority and the power that, that Jesus gives his people. And so <clears throat> I'm going to recommend one more book, two more books actually. This book by Richard Foster, it's called Prayer. Fantastic book. Last chapter is about deliverance and spiritual authority. 
and I'm going to read this section because it's so good. Foster says, spiritual warfare is not something we talk about. It's something we do. How do we do it? We do it by breaking all the destructive vows, both conscious and unconscious, that lie over the lives of many people. Many have condemned themselves with inner vows of sickness and failure and death. Seeing these things and knowing that it's not good for people to be in such bondage, we speak the word of authority that breaks the curse. Some, cur some have curses lying over them from the generations that have gone before. The curse of alcoholism, the curse of mental illness, and more. Whether the curse is physical, emotional, or spiritual, we break it in the name and by the authority of Jesus. How do we do it? We do it by taking authority over the sicknesses of mind and body and spirit. Sickness is an enemy and we're to fight against it. We speak balance into phobic and neurotic personalities. We rebuke fevers and choke off the blood supply to cancer cells. We call for wholeness and well-being to come sweeping into the lives of people. How do we do it? We do it by coming against every mountain that hinders our progress in God. We command fears of all kinds to leave and never return. We stand against evil thoughts and suspicions and distortions of every sort. We bind the spirit of anger and jealousy and gossip and release the spirit of forgiveness and love and faith. How do we do it? We do it by demon expulsion. Wherever we find evil forces at work, we firmly demand they leave. We're in charge, not they. In the ministry of power, we take authority over whatever is opposed to our life in the kingdom of God. How do we do it? We do it by coming against all social evil and institutional injustice. He wrote this decades ago, by the way. We blow the trumpet against institutional structures that guarantee the poverty of the poor. We oppose unjust laws that demean and dehumanize those for whom Christ died. We work for laws of equity and justice. We give to the poor. We feed the hungry. We shelter the homeless. All these things and much more are the work of authoritative prayer. It's a work that throughout is done in the spirit of deepest prayer and greatest humility, for we are trusting in the power of God, not our cleverness. And so I absolutely echo what Foster says. When, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we, we, we need to know whose authority we're under. We need to know why there's spiritual authority, because of Jesus, because of who he is. If he is who he says he is, then he's the one with the authority, not us, not our cleverness. It's not our ability to, we've got to think back and name every spirit by name, and we have to break off this curse and this curse intricately through these certain incantations. And we, That's superstition. Authority, spiritual authority, is saying, I believe God is who he says he is. I believe he has the power he says he has. And I'm going to claim that in my life. And then whatever else happens to me, I'm going to bear it with the strength that God's given me to bear it. That's spiritual authority. The last book I'll mention, and, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, we'll, do, we'll do more of these again. This is going to make for about a half hour or so podcast. Uh, but we'll do some more of these because I've gotten some other questions as well. The last book I'll mention, and this is by a charismatic author. So this guy is all about gifts of the spirit, prophecy, tongues, all that stuff. Um, this is an excellent book. It's called Thus Saith the Lord, question mark. How to tell when God is speaking to you through another. And this is by John Bevere. I read this back in college, and this book literally changed my life. He goes through in it, and, and he this is from somebody who believes in this stuff. He says, now let me tell you what the bogus is actually like. 
And he calls out a lot of things that are done by people in his circles that are unbiblical and shows why they're unbiblical and calls people back to scripture and back to a sense of balance when they're dealing with the prophetic, the spiritual, the demonic, all that stuff. Because see, everybody, everybody wants to think that they have hidden knowledge. Everybody that buys into a conspiracy wants to be in the know. Where everybody else outside is ignorant, sheeple, blind, not woke. They, they don't have the knowledge that we have. That's how conspiracy thinking works. That's how wokeness thinking works. That's how uh, all of these forms of intellectual hierarchy work. That's what it is. And there's nothing new. It's been going on for millennia. We have to avoid that trap, especially as Christians. We have to avoid the trap of seeking out the most esoteric, hidden stuff we can find because that's what then will give us the key insight we need to be super people, to be in the know, to be whatever. When in reality, what we need is right on the surface. What we need to know, God has given us thousands of words and people will ignore this and go search for the secret, the esoteric. They'll go to deliverance conferences. They'll go to healing services that are wild and out there. They'll follow around charismatic teachers and preachers. They'll send money to the charlatans on TV who say, touch the screen, put your hand on the screen and you'll be healed. All that nonsense. What they won't do is pick up and study scripture in its context. Not a verse here, a chapter there. Not link these two passages together. Not decode whatever secret hidden message. No, it's right. It's the main stuff's the main stuff. And as a teacher, the Disciple Dojo, that's what we try to do through the ongoing podcast is try to keep the main thing the main thing. So if you go to the Disciple Dojo podcast, you're going to have teaching through the books of the Bible in 30-minute segments that help you read and understand what you're reading. That's our heart. That's my heart to do. Because there's a lot of people out there peddling stuff. Man, I could, I could get on and make a lot of money probably selling nonsense in the name of the Lord. A lot of people do that. And so we need to look out for it. Now, does that mean any healing? Does that mean any deliverance? Does that mean any claims of the spiritual is automatically bogus? I don't think so. Does that mean it should be looked at with healthy skepticism? Yep, absolutely. When somebody tells me, the Lord told me, fill in the blank, my response is, interesting. Okay. If he told you that, then he'll confirm it. He'll do it. And I'm cool with that. But I'm not going to base my life on just what one person says God told them. Because we are a body. We're a community. So I'm going to seek out wisdom from people that I trust. People who are knowledgeable of Scripture. People who are knowledgeable of the things of the Lord. People who are spiritually discerning and sensitive. People who have blind spots that I don't have and who can see my blind spots because they don't have them. That's the body. That's relationship. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. And that's part of what I want to do with with videos like this is give 
you guys who may not have a home church, you may not have a Bible study you go to, you may be under quarantine or lockdown, to give you a chance to submit questions, shoot them to me in my inbox or email discipledojo at gmail.com, and we'll talk about them. I'll record the audio like I'm doing. I'll maybe try to clean it up, and then we'll put it on the podcast. But the goal will be for for you to be able to listen and to weigh what I'm saying, push back if you disagree. I, I can't keep track of the questions that are coming in. I'm seeing everybody who's been posting, but I can't stop and, and engage necessarily. Um, but I'll go back through and read the comments for sure. <clears throat> but but I as much as we can have dialogue and um, explore topics of importance, that's what I want to use these videos for. So I'm going to try to do it maybe once or twice a week. Uh, things down right now with COVID and quarantines and lockdowns, things are uncertain. Remember that quote from Screwtape, though. That's what Satan wants you to focus on. That's what the enemy wants you to focus on is the uncertainty, the evil in the world. And there's a lot of evil in the world. That's the one thing that we're seeing as a result of everybody kind of being locked into social media and, and kind of shut down from their day-to-day life is we're seeing people have a lot more time to learn about things and to, to dig things up. And there's a lot of evils that are getting exposed. They need to get exposed. In all of that, though, we can't lose sight of the fact that the biblical message is one of hope, and that the authority of Jesus is absolute. And so our calling in the meantime, while this world does not reflect God's glory fully, is to continue to live as if it does, to live in a way that, that um, what's the word, that prefigures, that foreshadows the age to come on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. So, um, we're going to wrap this discussion. We've gone too long already, but, you know, what else have you got to do? Uh, I don't know. Next time, uh, I've gotten a few more questions that have come in as people have responded to the post. And so, I'm going to be addressing some of these. Uh, some will be shorter, some will be longer. But please keep sending your questions to either DM me, send them to me on Instagram, or send them to my email, discipledojo at gmail. But we'll bring it up, we'll talk about them, and we'll keep doing this as long as you guys are uh, keep tuning in. So that's it. Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you soon.